Want to modernize your veterinary practice by offering virtual care to pet owners? You can do that with Medici. The Veterinarian Success Podcast is sponsored by Medici. That's M-E-D-I-C-I. Medici is a telehealth solution built for veterinarians and physicians. Visit medici.md backslash vets or call 512-967-6454 to learn more. Hi, this is Dr. Aaron Smiley, and I've offered telemedicine to my clients since I started practice. In 2017, I integrated paid telemedicine with Medici. Medici lets you text, call, and video chat with clients with their easy-to-use app, send and receive images and videos of pets, stay VCPR compliant, and get paid for delivering convenient care right from your phone. Ready to go virtual? Visit medici.md backslash vets. That's M-E-D-I-C-I dot M-D backslash V-E-T-S or call 512-967-6454 to learn more. With that, let's dive into the show. Welcome to the Veterinary Success Podcast. I'm your host, Isaiah Douglas. Today, I have Dr. Jennifer Chatfield, who is a prolific speaker kind of all over the country as far as big shows, WBC, NABC, VMX, Fetch. She also has this like little podcast that's out there you might have heard of. It's actually the number one podcast. So I'm coming for you. We'll talk about that in a little bit called Vet Candy. She's served as a policy specialist. So she's been on Capitol Hill, House of Representatives, just a lot of different stuff going on there as well. Also a practicing veterinarian, which we'll get into as well, an owner of two ER clinics, heralding from Texas A&M University. She Woo! pursued her emergency medicine and zoo medicine kind of focus. She's worked as a zoo veterinarian, done research and completed field work in Madagascar and South America. Some may have suggested that you, Dr. Chatfield, are the most interesting veterinarian in the world. I think of like the Dos Equis commercial and I'm like, okay, just swap it out. That's you. It's hard to argue with that bio that that's not you. But with all that being said, thank you so much for the time and coming on the show. Oh my gosh. That's so fantastic. I love it. I love it. And actually, I drink dirty vodka martinis. So if anybody's listening out there and you'd like me to do a promo, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> there you go. Get I sponsored. Would <laughs> I would love it. But um, no, thank you so much. I love it when you phrase it that way, because what my dad says is that I couldn't keep a job. So thank you for phrasing it in such a such a positive fashion. I joke that, you know, now that I've started my own business, I want to be as unemployable as possible. Like, I don't think I could go back to being an employee. People wouldn't like me. They would just That's be like, right. hey, Isaiah, we got to fire you. You got to get out of here. This isn't That's good. Right. That's so right. when you get to that point and you see it, it's super important. Today's conversation is going to be kind of all over the board. And for those listening, usually we'll have kind of a pre-call and talk about different things we want to chat through. We've not met or talked before this outside of a LinkedIn message back and forth. So this will be fun. It's going to be kind of all over the place. But I wanted to kick it off with a question that I don't think you've been asked. And if you have, I apologize. But if you had to get out of veterinary medicine completely, couldn't do it at all, what would you do? Where would your career go? Oh, wow. I don't know. So that's a really tough question for me, which is funny in and of itself, right? So I'll percolate while I tell you why that's funny. How about that? I accidentally became a veterinarian, right? I wasn't going to be a veterinarian. I was going to be a flight attendant or something else, but never a veterinarian. But I thank God every day that I accidentally found out where I was supposed to go because now I cannot imagine that I was supposed to, to do anything else. Maybe I would just be a podcaster <laughs> if I wasn't a veterinarian because I really enjoy that. And I also, it turns out, really enjoy writing. I never enjoyed that in school, but in grown-up land, they don't seem to care that much about grammar and 
handwriting legibility and stuff like that. So those are one of my big obstacles. So yeah. I think content creator would fit that mold. Uh, I'm going to write, I'm going to publish, which makes sense because you kind of are right now just saying, hey, I'm going to write and build content for those within veterinary medicine. So I'll allow it. We'll let that be the answer, even though that's kind of what you're doing right now. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. The first question I get, like, I have to get permission. (laughs) Yeah, no. Podcast, folks. Yeah. But talking about the podcast and something that you love, it's something yeah. you collaborate with your brother on. Yeah. I know you think about like veterinary medicine, it can be, oh, you know, my parents were in vet med yeah. or someone else. You hear this like family lineage. Yeah. Working with family is tough. Any stories, advice, oh, not necessarily collaborating on a podcast, but just in general of, of working with someone that you're that close to and have a kind of a different relationship than that work relationship. It's hard. It's really hard. And Jason and I actually talk a little bit about it. I think we only told a couple stories. It was like our first episode of our podcast because the thing that we knew the most together was working with family. So we we're like, okay, we'll talk about that. That'll be easy. And then we had to like eke out like 15 minutes, right? But the story that we like to tell about working together is by the time we were like eight or nine, we could walk on the farm. We could help herd animals because we're animal people who accidentally became veterinarians because the two things are very distinct, right? And if somebody doesn't work on the team for herding some animals, you have to do it multiple times <laughs> because there's a mistake and you got to start over, right? Something gets out and you got to start over. And so we lived in fear of getting that phrase from my dad, just get back in the house. I don't need that kind of help, right? And then I was like, oh, you hang your head in shame and walk back to the house. So you have to learn pretty quickly if you grow up on a farm or in an agricultural setting, because everybody does their bit. And then when someone leaves, someone else has to pick up their slack for real. So you really don't like people to leave or travel or gosh, or anything, go off to vet school. What the what? So yeah, but working, you always feel like you've kind of abandoned the team if you do something different or if you move somewhere else or et cetera. So working with family is tricky. It's even trickier in a clinical setting, right? Jason worked at one of my emergency practices. Very tricky, but different than when my mom worked at my emergency practice. (laughs) So I guess we have had a lot of family efforts together. How so with the dynamic of, is it because it's your mom versus brother and just the relationship there? It is a little bit because we like to be successful. That's something my folks really, you know, we played team sports because we're from Texas. So when we were three, we were on a team, right? Three till, gosh, I feel like I'm still on team. And so you don't want to let the team down and you want to be able to kind of pull your weight. So if I was looking at a case that I was stymied by, then I could talk to Jason right? And and vice versa, except for surgery, which I don't, I only like a couple of different surgical procedures, but I dislike surgery in general. (laughs) It's kind of like cats. Like I don't just like cats. I like certain cats. So like if he was doing a surgery and it can be very frustrating and I know veterinarians listening know what I'm talking about. And I know surgical technicians know what I'm talking about because they've seen it. (laughs) And he, you know, and he asked for help because it was a strange procedure for him or whatever. There's a lot of pressure. And there's a lot of pressure on me because I'm like, oh, I want to help. I know I can help him, but I know we can do this, but I can help him. So that's much different. You'll handle it much differently than you will with non-family. You'll say things to each other you would never say to regular people. And that's good and bad. So it's tricky. Have you worked with family? I have. And I think if you think about for me, so my dad grew up as a farmer, family farmer, and kind of saw those dynamics. He got out of family farming partially just because of the relational aspects of having a brother and a father and just oh, those yeah. 
how those relationships change over time. And then yep. if you think about what I do today, you know, if you're talking and helping people like make financial decisions, I think you mix money and family together. It makes oh. it even trickier. So <laughs> that's kind of one of those things that I don't, I've always been like, hey, if you want to talk about it, that's great. I have no desire to introduce that conversation. So again, it's the same way where you kind of add two extra sensitive topics together and it gets challenging. But yeah. But don't you find though, at least for me, and I guess maybe it's also because Jason and I are twins, that I've never known life without him. And the same thing for him. It's not like one of us was by ourselves and then the other one came along. It's so I feel like, I mean, everywhere I go in the world, I have a friend. I know I have a friend. There's like zero doubt that I have a friend and his name is Jason and he may not be there, but it doesn't matter if everyone there hates me. He still thinks I'm okay. Right. And so that foundation, I think, really helps with our family working together, which I do think is an advantage. And I feel bad for you because you're not a twin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I have two brothers, yeah. two sisters. So big family, but yeah, yeah. no twins. Yeah. No twins. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how people do it. I'm like, how do kids go off to school? And they don't have a twin. Like we'd go to a new school and it was like, we didn't care. No problem. Cause we brought our buddy with us. Right. Otherwise you're just out there all by yourself. <laughs> um, yeah. It's crazy. I can't even imagine. Yeah. So yeah, it's the exact opposite for everyone else. Like it'd be so weird to have someone that's a twin. And again, it's nice that you're not identical. Cause I like, think that would add a whole other challenge to it, but having that other person that you can rely on that gets you in the same way. Mm-hmm. You're like, Hey, you just kind of start having those nonverbal cues is pretty cool. Special. Yeah. Yeah, uh, it is. So when you think about lecturing podcast, uh-huh. you have a YouTube channel, which we joked right before we clicked record. When you think about the different things, you have a favorite platform or area that you would like to do content better than the others or each different for you. I have this skill that I think has helped me a lot, which is I enjoy what I'm doing. <laughs> Whatever it is, you got to find something that you enjoy about it, right? And so I like each of them for different reasons. I love the podcast because me and Jason, that's like a, we get to have a conversation. Sometimes we just talk about topics we think are interesting. And sometimes we talk to interesting people. So I enjoy that. I also like a little bit of the anonymity with a podcast because, you know, not for nothing, y'all are listening. Y'all can't see us. I could walk by you on the street and you wouldn't know it was me. I kind of like that a little bit. And Thank you so much for mentioning my YouTube. So my YouTube channel is like my newest effort. So it's very much in its infancy. And so I'm enjoying that because it's such a steep learning curve. And any of you out there who've been on YouTube, man, hats off because it's hard. (laughs) The learning curve is incredible, right? But I love it. I mean, that could be the skill that gets me off the island someday, right? And the thing I really enjoy about lecturing is that I get to meet the people and I get that instantaneous feedback. And I really enjoy that. Everybody that comes to my lecture shows up and they've walked their own path to get there. And they're there for a different reason. They're going to get something different out of it than the people sitting next to them. And that fascinates me. I really like that because my career path in veterinary medicine is normal for me because it's my path, right? But It's apparently abnormal for others, but everyone has that path and everyone is different. And that's one of the things that I love about veterinary medicine, right? You don't have to look the same. You don't even got to talk the same. You don't have to like the same stuff and you ain't got to come from the same place, but you can still be successful and they'll still welcome you in as a colleague. And I think there are very few professions 
that do that. I think there's jobs that do that, but there's very few, I think, kind of collegial professions that do that very well. So I love that. And I guess you can't replace that, which is why moving our lives to Zoom has just crushed me (laughs) mentally, not seeing people. So what do you find? Because you do a lot of different things, right? I see you on LinkedIn. You've got the podcast. You're doing all kinds of stuff. And I know you meet with clients, jump to a new firm. So which of those do you find the most exciting? Yeah, I think when you think about like what gives you energy and you start realizing Mm -hmm. like, what do you look forward to in the day? Again, you mentioned it. I love having conversations like this because part of the podcast for me, why I started it was I wanted to learn. I was looking for information. I was like, well, shoot, if I can't find it, maybe I can convince people to come on. Let me ask them the questions I want to ask, right? Uh, I can learn and I publish it and people think you're great. It's like, wow, this is amazing. (laughs) All I did was ask good questions and shut up and and let someone else talk. Yeah, It is amazing. Now, yeah, it's initially, it's a little bit of a labor of love, but I enjoy the podcast the most for sure. But in person, like conversations and meetings and help people like discover like, ooh, this is cool, or I want to accomplish this and like really get underneath the surface level stuff. That's the fun stuff. Yeah. But I'm a member of Vet Partners and there's other things where like getting to collaborate with other people, it's not necessarily going and listening to, let's say, the lecture. It's the Uh conversation in the hall after with someone for 20 or 15 minutes that you're like, oh Mm -hmm. my gosh, that's such a great idea. I do need to Mm -hmm. connect with so-and-so or I want to make sure that we stay connected. And that's the stuff that I love, like the relationships. But that's what I try to do in my lectures, actually, is I abhor like the classical talking head expert in front of the room approach, right? So I like a more facilitated discussion approach to continuing education, especially because adults, everyone that walked in can bring something to the table. No one is coming there totally ignorant on the topic. And so why would we waste that opportunity to bring that knowledge out and let everybody learn from it, right? And so I try to do the hallway conversation writ large in the lecture hall, which is tricky. That's a fair warning. If you show up at my lecture, be ready. (laughs) You're going to get called on. Don't be on your phones. Focus. Pay attention. (laughs) That's right. So you talked about it. Like, again, we're both doing content. Like, there's a Mm -hmm. lot of good stuff that's out there. Ideas. Where do you get inspiration? How do you think about that? Because I think a lot of, especially younger veterinarians I talk to, they have the right approach where they want to build this brand of themselves, regardless of who they work for. If they start their own thing, they're going to have a brand about them, which I think is really smart. And I would encourage you to continue to do that for any of those that are trying. How would you encourage them? And when you do get stuck, like, how do you get creative ideas? Especially right now, if you're not seeing as many people in person, any thoughts around that? I know that if you knew the answer, like that's like the billion dollar question for a lot of things, but. So inspiration and creativity to me are two different things. My inspiration comes from something that's consistent throughout my life because that is related to who I am is where I get the inspiration. But the creativity piece, like what do you do when you're trying to come up with a name for a video, right? Like that's creativity to me. That's not inspiration. So what I do is I stop thinking about it. You got to let your brain work. We don't even know how the brain works yet, right? So why would we try to tell it what to do? So for me, I put it down and I go do something else. A lot of good ideas in my experience show up when I am mowing like I have a push mower. We have, we have 10 acres on the farm now. I don't mow 10 acres straight with a push mower. A, that would be too easy, right? Cause it'd just be straight lines. No, but we got different things like the barnyard and stuff like that. And to me, that gives my part of my brain something to do, right? But not, it doesn't have to tax it a lot. And the rest of it just kind of hops along, percolating back here. And then something shows up and you got to sift through it. I mean, that's what I do. The other thing I do is I, I consume a ton of content. I like to read. I'm interested in a lot of different things. It's like, just because I'm a veterinarian, 
doesn't mean I'm not interested in how to edit videos. <laughs> I mean, I got to talk about like what I'm focused on right now. For heaven's sakes, my eyes are bleeding from looking at the computer so much and trying to match the audio in the video. I mean, there's very little that I don't find interesting. And so I like to consume a lot of content. When I wake up in the morning, the first thing I do, read. Read, read, read. What's the new articles? Where that's happening? What's going on on Dancing with the Stars this week? I mean, seriously. And then if somebody has something like a historical fiction thing, oh man, I'm on it. Love it. Anything like that. And then I finish reading whatever might be there, flip on the news, watching the TV, put on some reruns so I don't pay attention. I can do some work. (laughs) I read the journals. I don't want to sound like a nerd, but I read the journals the veterinary medical journals. And Alan Gannett, in his book, Creative Curve, he talks about this, that the people who are most creative consume a lot of that type of content. And so like vet students come to me and they're like, I want to publish. I want to do research. What do you think I should do? And I'm like, well, do you read research papers at all? No. Well, how about start reading? (laughs) Start reading the stuff you want to be able to write. Because a long time ago, when I was looking to publish for the first time, no idea what to publish on. I just knew I wanted to publish, which sounds like a really egotistical goal now that I say it out loud. But I went to a guy who turned out to be a very good mentor for me at the time, a clinician at the university, Dr. Jensen, shout out. And I said, so we have this data set. How do I start writing this? And he said, well, Jennifer, why don't you read a few papers? How about that? Why don't you see how they wrote it? So I can't take credit for knowing that pearl, can I? Can I take credit for that? I got a credit, Dr. J. I call it swiping, steal with integrity and pride. I was told that early on. So if you hear a great idea, yes, you can swipe it, you can make it your own. A lot of what we see today, and you think about creativity, innovation, all that stuff, a lot of it's just slight tweaks on someone else's idea. And just to kind of rewind and go back through that, when you think about inspiration, I totally agree. Sometimes when your brain's off, shower, getting ready to lay down the bed, stuff like that when you're not even thinking about it versus, hey, on Tuesday from 10 to 1130, I'm going to get creative and write. You will struggle. Like if you try to like just block out that time, sometimes for me, it's like you're listening to something else and it thinks of an idea. I know it's on my iPhone, like boom, 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 just try to remember this is good stuff. It comes in waves, right? I'll be like, I don't feel like writing anything, nothing. And that'll go on for some period of time, right? It might be days, it might be a couple weeks or whatever. And then all of a sudden I'll sit down and one evening and I'll put out, like I'll crank out like three meanwhile columns or two different article, long articles <laughs> for magazines. And it just happens that way. So I am lucky that I have that fallback gig, right? Of being a veterinarian so that I don't have to meet a deadline with writing. It's helpful. You talked about different articles or reading a lot. One of the questions I actually wanted to get to was kind of best book, podcast, video you've watched or read recently. Anything that jumps out or you think, oh, that was really good? I haven't read too many books in a while. I'm trying to think of the last one I read because it was really good. But it's probably been six months since I read like a book because I like to read the actual book. I can't get in with this electronic stuff. I still dog ear the pages, which used to drive my mom nuts. I shouldn't say that. It still drives her nuts, not in the past tense. But what's terrible is probably the last thing I remember reading that was super good was, you know, the series Girl with the Dragon Tattoo? Yes. Um, those books is Stieg Larson, I think, wrote them. But then he passed away while finishing the last one. The last one of those came out. Boy, that's been a couple of years then. His family finished it. But those books, gosh, the first three, I think I read in like two days, three days. 
which is another good reason I don't read books because I need to finish it. That's not healthy. So that was probably the last one of those. The last article I read that was really good. I've been reading a whole lot on vaccine platforms and then also about human behavior as it might relate to vaccination programs for, let's say, emerging pathogens. (laughs) Hmm. Uh, Right. Hmm. (laughs) Which I find fascinating. Humans are like the most interesting creatures about behavior, right? And so I've read some really interesting articles about that. Meanwhile, column to follow. And then there were, oh yeah, this thing. Okay. Truth be told, just Yesterday, I read an article about some kind of novel antibiotic compound that they're finding in the nests of wood rats, just naturally occurring. So I had to think to myself, how would you come upon that discovery? I mean, that's not like when they accidentally created Tang. Like, what were you doing in the nests of wood rats analyzing compound? How did you get there? Again, the human behavior part. But yeah, there's that. Yeah, that's probably it. Ooh, so I'm a podcast junkie. And I would say if anyone follows me on LinkedIn or Twitter, they know like for me right now, like what is most interesting to me is kind of this whole, I think it's the story of the 2020s is Bitcoin. I did a podcast earlier with Tyron oh, Ross. Yeah. So for me, that's where I'm very just fascinated. And mm-hmm. I think similar to you, like where you get on a topic and you kind of get obsessed and like really going deep and learning. I've kind of been on that journey since earlier this year, but just like very, very, very much trying to be as educated as possible. Read a couple different books. Again, not to turn this into that kind of discussion, but... Bitcoin is crazy interesting. Everything with Bitcoin fascinates me because I'm like, how are they allowing it to happen? Like, how are all the governments allowing it to happen, right? That is a competing currency, right? So how is that legal in the United States? The existence of it kind of devalues all the others, right? Just the existence of it. Anyway, so we won't go on the tangent, but... All that fascinates me. It is fascinating. And I would say for those that are interested, the best book is to read is The Bitcoin Standard. It's an excellent, excellent book. I picked it up and read it very, very quickly. But I think that helps give you a really good idea of like the history of money and why it matters and how it affects. But yeah, to your point, there's a lot more to come. That's why I think the next decade, there'll be a lot more that we'll be talking about it. So I think after people initially laugh when I bring it up, they're kind of like, oh, yeah, this is interesting. Okay, but wait. So I got to ask a question. If people listen to your last episode, they may or may not have the answer to this question because I know you're focused on Bitcoin for that one. So when we say Bitcoin, is that like Coke versus soda pop? Because isn't there Bitcoin, but there's also other types of cryptocurrency and Bitcoin is kind of like a trade name because isn't Bitcoin a type of cryptocurrency and there's other kinds? Is that right? To answer your question, yes, there's different kinds. So I would say Bitcoin is the OG or the original, right? So it was developed mm-hmm. out of the great financial crisis. Right. Anonymous person right. or persons developed it. Mm-hmm. There's been a lot of other things that have been developed since, but since it's the original, uh-huh. there's kind of Bitcoin and then there's other crypto assets. They aren't necessarily the same thing. Bitcoin is you know, 60% of all the market of cryptocurrency. Same way that we talked about currencies. There's 180 currencies in the world. If you think about currencies, the US dollar, the euro, the yen, just kind of the top three to four are dominant. That's all that people care about. They don't care about things that are okay, so often some... Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, I was like, I'm going to struggle to think of a really obscure currency. There you go. The RERE. Mm-hmm. Yeah, perfect. Yeah. yeah, so Bitcoin has kind of that network effect similar to Google, Amazon, Facebook of being that dominant. And there's just continuing to be things that come out. And there's a publicly traded company that just put 425 million of their cash into, into Bitcoin. So there's just, again, tons of interesting things that are going on in the space. There's an office of the treasury that's allowing banks to now interact with all crypto assets. But yeah, there's Bitcoin and then there's everything else. My high level advice on that, 
just focus on Bitcoin. There's a lot of other things that may be interesting down the road, but they're not there yet. Focus on the biggest thing, the thing that's going to be around and you know will be around. So that's probably the OG, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just stick with what's there, what's worked. It doesn't change. Yeah. Anyways, we could have a second when we can go through that. But I love the questions because there are a lot of questions. And I think just like with anything, it's like you want to be empowered and understand what's going on. And then once you have the information, there's a lot of bad information. There's a lot of good information. Just try to find where is reliable sources of information. Because yeah, I was with a lot of other people like, oh, it's fake and it's not worth anything. And it's like, oh, so once you start kind of getting the wheels turning, it's definitely interesting. Talking about human behavior, because I want to tie back to that. I think Bitcoin plays on that fact too. So let's use that to jump into the next question. So I like TED Talk videos. I haven't watched a ton lately, but there was one that I watched a while back that talks about how 70% of CEOs have imposter syndrome, yet you really never know about it, right? Someone has educated experience, has done all this stuff from the outside world. It's like, oh my gosh, Dr. Chatfield, she's got everything in order. She probably never struggles with this. Have you ever struggled with imposter syndrome? How do you deal with it? So yeah, thanks for that. Well, it does happen to me. It typically occurs when my invisible jet is in the shop. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) So a very good friend told me years and years and years ago, before either one of us were veterinarians, we were going to meet somebody. Well, for the first time. So it was Murray Fowler, who you may or may not know is the grandfather of zoo medicine. His textbooks are still the Bible for many zoo vets, even though he has passed away. And I was like, why am I going to go meet that guy? What am I going to say to him? I was like 19 or 20. And he says, oh, Chatfield, come on. And he puts his pants on the same every day, one leg at a time, get up over yourself. Let's go shake his hand anyhow. <laughs> and I said, okay, because, you know, and I remind myself of that all the time when I'm going to meet other people. I remind myself of that when I'm finishing a lecture and people are coming up to talk to me to ask questions because it is just as unnerving for the person you're approaching as it is for you approaching them, right? Because we're all people. I think when you lose that, because I just happen to be the person that's standing in front of the room that day, right? Or I happen to be the person who was in the right place at the right time, and here I am. There is always somebody who knows more than you. That's a fact. I don't know who they are in every room, but they're there. And the moment that you think that you know everything, the universe will remind you that you don't. And so I think everybody struggles. I have another friend, she's a pediatrician and she truly is somebody who will save the world. So she goes places like the Sudan, Afghanistan, places like that to help. And also practices or did before she retired a couple of years ago, practice as a pediatrician. She and two colleagues had a practice and she would say to me, you never know the pain that's behind a front door. And I'm sure she's not the first person to say that, but she's the one who said it to me first because she said you would have a kid come in. The kid would look perfect, bows in the hair, pigtails, matching dress, matching shoes, totally clean, well-behaved, this and that. And then the mom, the same thing. And then you would find out later they did not have it all together. They did not. And so I did learn early on because I don't ever want to miss out on an opportunity to try something that it's a lot harder to try new things if you're trying to pretend to be somebody you're not. So I have decided that I am who I am. That's all right with me. But it does mean that I get nervous. I don't know about imposter syndrome because I'm not really sure all of the definitions of that. But I think getting concerned that I'm not the person that should be doing this. Maybe there's somebody who's better at it. 
I think they're probably as close. And I feel that all the time. I feel that today. I mean, look at when I'm coming on your podcast. I was like, what are we going to talk about finances, right? I know I should have more money coming in than I have going out. That's what I know about finance, you know, but I said, okay, that's what you got to do. Especially for those young veterinarians, I think that's interesting. I mean, do you find that a lot when you talk with veterinarians that imposter syndrome is a thing? Absolutely. I think a lot of times people get asked, like you have the client come in and they're like, oh, you're the doctor. Come on, like send me someone that actually knows what they're like. I think that happens a lot. And you still have to be able to say, you know what, actually, I've busted my hump, spent a lot of time. You don't know my backstory of how hard it was to get here. And you have so much more information than they do. They have no way that Dr. Google has what they have. But, but see, that doesn't offend me. It never offended me, right? I would walk into exam rooms. This one practice I worked at, right? The owner of the practice. So she was at the time, she was like 32, maybe 31, but she looked about 20 and she was beautiful. And of course I was like, you know, what is that, 26, 27. And I had a client say that. The very first time a client said that to me, they said, no offense, which means someone is about to smack you rhetorically, right? No offense, but my dog's important to me and you don't look old enough to take care of my dog. I'd like the owner of the practice. And I said, okay, get ready. <laughs> right? Because if she comes in and they're like, what? Well, we went the other one back. Nope. No. And then I would say something I shouldn't say on your podcast as a family show, but I gave him a name. And so it never offends me. Somebody says, especially standing at the back of their pickup truck, looking at their horse or some cows or a goat or an antelope or a whatever you can imagine, right? The situation. And they say, are you sure you're the veterinarian? Why would I be offended? I would say, oh, thank you. Yes, but yes, I am. Do you want me to throw out some big doctor words for you? Because I can. <laughs> so I wonder about folks, your perspective is what's important, right? And why would it offend me that you presume I'm not the veterinarian? I'd just tell them, hey, you know, the best part about this is I'm not going to retire on you. You can work with me for a long time. Forever. But yeah. I mean, I was just like, oh my gosh, thank you. Like, what do you think yeah. I look like? Clearly you think I look like a supermodel and not a veterinarian, right? Yeah. That's, I mean, come on. So I used to get that a lot, all the time, all the time. And I know that the more diverse that veterinary medicine becomes, I think the more of our colleagues are going to face that in the short term. And then it will become common knowledge that veterinarians can look like anything. And that'll go away, but it'll take a long time to get there. <laughs> but yeah, so that doesn't offend me. What do you think is a topic that's misunderstood in veterinary medicine today? You can take that from any angle that you want. Misunderstood by my colleagues in veterinary medicine or misunderstood by the world at large? Either or, whichever one you think is a topic that you want to dive into. What if I give you both? Let's do it. Bonus, bonus yeah. things are coming your way. So I think among the general public, it will come as no surprise given my background. I think that the thing that's misunderstood is the amount of education we get the broad base of it and how applicable it is to so many different things. So that's why I say that, especially women, oh my gosh, it's one of the most empowering degrees you can have as a female is to become a veterinarian. And so I think the world at large sometimes doesn't realize that. And I faced that on Capitol Hill. They were like, I mean, the congressman, I loved him. But the very first day after his chief of staff hired me in their office, I sat down with him and he said, you seem nice and I'm happy that you're here. Thanks for joining the team. But what is it you think we need a veterinarian for? <laughs> oh my goodness. Again, not offensive, right? 
But fast forward two years. And he said to me on the last day when I had finished my fellowship, but he had hired me on. And then, you know, the Congress is changing. And I said, maybe we'll work together again. He said, Jennifer, I wasn't real sure how it's going to go when you started here. But now I'm not sure what we're going to do without a veterinarian in the office. And so I think that's misunderstood. With my colleagues in veterinary medicine, I think the thing that's misunderstood most often is what exactly is our role? What's our role in practice where we're providing recommendations and then executing on the decisions made by the owner to provide care for their pet? Do you see all those key words I put in there, right? We provide recommendations. We execute decisions made by the owner on their pet. And then the understanding that I wasn't issued a set of robes and a gavel when I graduated from vet school. And unless I'm mistaken, neither was anyone else. And so as soon as they come through the door of a practice, they're a good owner because they didn't have to come. And they noticed that they needed to come, that there was a problem. And then they came because so many regular people, non-veterinarians I talk to now, their biggest fear is not if they'll find a veterinarian that they like. Their biggest fear is if they'll find a veterinarian who likes them and who will not judge them. And to me, that's very concerning with long-term implications for the profession. I'm not the police. I don't want to be the police. If you ask my friends, the my lifelong friends, they'll be like, oh my God, Chatfield is the police as a regulatory official? Are you kidding me? No, this is not my forte. <laughs> like live and let live, friends. But I think that's going to become a problem if we allow that attitude to persist and permeate our profession. So that's unfortunate. But hopefully people are listening and we can fix it. Absolutely. I love that. And I think there's so many ties in this conversation that come back to some of what I do, where people feel judged that I should have saved more, I should have done this, or I have too much debt. And I'm like, uh, yes. you wouldn't believe the stuff that I see or the conversations yeah. I've had. You're totally fine. And if it's a lot of money to you, it's a lot of money to me. And some people are like, oh, I know I'm be like so smart. No, like it doesn't matter. It's exactly. all about like you. I'm not going to project and judge you mm -hmm. on that. Mm -hmm. It's not my role. So I think that's really great advice. And that probably goes to a lot of other professions too. Exactly. I was just going to say, and that's the thing with the service industry, because so like you're seeing people's dark secrets in one pocket, get the pun pocket, right? And we're seeing the other one, right? Another one, right? We're seeing like how they live in their home as reflected in their pet, right? And again, not my job to judge humanity, <laughs> But my job to help them, right? And be inclusive so that let me help you if you don't know, because a lot of people don't know how to take care of their pet, just like they don't know how to run their finances. So if you don't know that in Florida, if your dog is not on flea prevention, then they have fleas. There's no magic household that's flea free. But if you don't know that, because you've been getting all your information from Facebook or something, then shouldn't I help you? Not just as a veterinarian, but as a human being. Isn't the better position for me to help you now that you know better? Let me help you do better, right? Yeah, so I feel like we've kind of gotten away from that. And I think we should get back to it. <laughs> well, I think that actually feeds back to the conversation earlier around like creating this persona, this brand, this content. You can create that content to say, you know what, I'm going to help these people. They may never come and see me. But if I'm putting that out, it's going to get out there where it's going to be beneficial. And then people are going to build that relationship and that trust, but they don't feel like they're going to get judged if they do come in and they have X, Y, and Z with their cat, dog, or whatever other pet they have. So interesting. Stay tuned to my YouTube channel for a new show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Shameless plug. Yeah, absolutely. So you're a practice owner and you I think was. about 
I was, was sorry. Yes. Yeah. Sorry. Was I think at the AVMA Economic Summit last year, which I really love that. I think Dr. Sloy and others do a fantastic job and look forward. And Even I though think, it'll be virtual, I think it'll be speaking, great to see. But you're speaking this year, right? No, no, did, I'm not speaking. Oh, I I'm thought not you were. He might need to tell me that. I don't believe I'm speaking. <laughs> this is news <laughs> to me if I'm speaking next month. So I better check. Maybe it was wishful thinking <laughs> on my part, right? Like I was thinking, boy, I'd like to see that guy. Hey, Dr. Saloy, yeah, come yeah. on now, right? I know him well enough. Yeah. I could reach out, but <laughs> maybe another year. I don't need that kind of pressure right now to speak. I don't have anything great that I want to say that I feel like would fit for that audience, but maybe in a coming year. Anyways, he talked about, and I don't know if it was him or, or one of the other uh, AVMA economists talking about 40% of current practice owners will sell their business in the next 10 years. So there's going to be this big transition. I've heard from multiple young veterinarians that they're like, well, there's no private practice model left. It'll no longer exist. Your face, even though people can't see it, I think tells me the answer that I'm about ready to ask. Do you agree or disagree? Why? And what's your views on that? So number one, disclaimer, if I could predict the future, I'd be in Vegas right now making a lot more money, right? So I can't, right? If you can, let's have that convo offline. Yeah, we won't record that for everyone else no, if I no. know it. We'll save it. So I find the same thing, right? So I talk to a lot of vet students and I don't know where they're getting this idea, but in the world at large, and you correct me if I'm wrong, because this is your jam, it's hard to make money working for somebody else. 100%. It's hard to make real money working for somebody else. And all of this talk that people have right now about work-life balance, I abhor that phrase, work-life balance. If you really want to balance your work and your life, although to me, why not just integrate them? Everybody's so much happier. But if you want to have control over that balance, you got to work for only one person, and that's you. So the other thing is that statistically... Also, again, you may have the more accurate data, but I think a couple of years ago when I saw it, 6% of veterinary practices were corporately owned. 20 was the last number that I saw. That might have been projections too for the coming few years, but that's kind of the number that I've used when I've had conversations is kind of that 15 to 20. Yeah. So to me, that doesn't signal the coming extinction of the private practice owner. And until such time as I'm not licensed and able to hang a shingle outside my driveway... <laughs> And practice, you won't see the end of the private practice model. There are clients who are going to want that. There's always going to be that. And last I checked, a lot of the corporate entities, they're always hiring. What does that tell us? So it either tells us their growth is so astronomical that we all should buy stock or there's a hiccup there. And so until such time as every veterinarian is looking to work in corporate, I don't think we have to worry. But when I talk with vet students and younger veterinarians, it's like this is a novel concept. Like if you want to control your own time, own a practice. I would still be in student loan debt if I hadn't started a practice. That's a fact. I would still be in a ton of it. Like I wouldn't even be able to see the top of the hole I was in, right? So to me, it's a very interesting dynamic we're seeing because they want to work. It's not like younger veterinarians don't want to work. I choose not to hear it that way. I think they're just not understanding necessarily what it means to own the practice. Because even if you're the associate vet working for somebody else, you're still on the hook as a veterinarian for that case that you took care of. The buck stops with you. You just may not be in control of all the other pieces of it <laughs> because the practice owner is. And if you really want propofol instead of telazol for inducing your anesthetic procedures, well, who's in charge of whether or not you have that? The owner. And if the owner's not you, you may or may not get that, right? So, I mean, 
to me, it's just common sense that if you want to be in control of all of that, own the practice. If you want to take off at three o'clock every afternoon, because that's when your kid gets out of school, own the practice. Then the bonus is you're making money even when you're not there. I mean, that's not bad, right? Have you been able to discern the reason that folks think that? I think it's the worry that they're going to be the old school model, which A, again, part of why I merged, we talked about that earlier, is to have a partnership, work with someone else that you think is a lot smarter than you and makes you better at your work and also gives you flexibility for just having that, like the integration. So you don't have to do it alone. You don't have to be there six days a week working eight hours, like this old school model. And I think that's what so many people associate with being an owner. And that is absolutely not the case to where you have to work yourself to death. So I think that kind of myth is out there. The other is, oh, I have too much in student loan debt. You know, the best way to pay off your student loan debt, you hit on it, is make more money. How do you make more money? You own the practice. There's a reason why the consolidators do want to come in and buy practices and they're paying an astronomical amount is because they can make money. They can borrow at X and then when they own the practice, they make Y. You know who the biggest function of them making their money is? You, the associate veterinarian. Who so doesn't think th- they should own a practice? I think the biggest thing, so again, I've talked about this before, but like my kind of niche and focus is dentistry and vet med. And I think vet med is continuing to be a bigger part of what I do, which is part of the podcast, all this other fun stuff. Dentists value their worth. I think veterinarians undervalue themselves so much. And I just had a conversation with a client that she has her own practice, but she's like, oh, I'm definitely undercharging. But I like these people. I want to help. I'm like, you have to charge what you're worth. You didn't go to school for that long to undercharge. You have to charge what you're worth to make sure that you can have a successful business. So I think from just understanding business topics and acumen, and again, that's part of what I want this podcast to be too, is just continue to beat the drum that practice ownership's out there. There's people that will lend you money. I know that for a fact. There are plenty of people that want to lend money. And so if you look at the return of a veterinary practice, even just traditional investment. So somebody like me, I can't do the same things that you can do as a veterinarian. And the return on a practice is so much higher than what you can do elsewhere. And you get all these tax benefits. And again, that's way too far outside of what we're going to talk about today. There are a lot of benefits to it. It's all about, is that what you want? If you don't want the extra stress and headaches, but you're always going to have headaches and stress, regardless what job you do. Again, there's nothing wrong about working at Starbucks, but if you work at Starbucks, you have stress, you're going to have issues, you're going to have this personality conflicts, you're going to have all this stuff. If you're owner Mm -hmm. of a vet practice, you have the same thing. Mm -hmm. So you're always going to have stress. You never get to a job that has zero stress. Ever. And you know what I think is interesting too, because, okay, so I'll bring this back to something I find. So, you know, they came up with these, what, five freedoms for animals or whatever the welfare people came up with. Don't crush me on the internet. But it's basically that every animal is entitled, every animal, every creature entitled to these five freedoms, which ensure a life without stress. And I'm like, I don't even get those... (laughs) Those five freedoms, you know, a Boston Terrier's entitled to. So I'm not slamming people and saying we shouldn't look out for animal welfare. Not that at all. Like, just pay attention to like I'm using the analogy. okay, people. But if you don't have any stress and every day is the same, that's miserable. You have to have the stress so that you can appreciate when you don't. Or another way to say that is you have to have the challenge so that you can appreciate conquering it. Because a life that's never challenged or never stressed, like, what's the point of that? How boring is that? How awful? Every day is the same. I mean, some people refer to that as prison. It's terrible. So the not wanting to own the practice and all of that is fascinating to me. Yeah, incredible. And everybody, you're right. Everybody will try to lend you money. But the one you're going to get it from will be the federal government, right? Because you'll get an SBA loan. The bank may seem to be giving it to you, but they're not. They're just funneling your paperwork to the SBA loan in general, right? That's what they want to do. 
there's a lot of truth to that. Which is why I didn't get one and why I didn't get any loans to start my first practice. So it's, you can do it. You can do it, but it's hard. Yeah, we are coming up on time. I feel like we could have this conversation because there's more that I had down here that we could chat through, but this has been fantastic. I appreciate the time. For those that don't know you, and again, how they wouldn't, I don't know, but where would you direct them to learn more, connect with you, find out information, all that good stuff? And we'll link to all this in the show notes. So you tell them where you want them to go. That's so fantastic. This is like a totally legit, not a shameless plug, but a legitimate plug. So thank you. So you can find me at drjenthevet.com, my website. I recently made a foray into Instagram land at Dr. Jen the vet, but don't expect too much there because again, learning curve is steep, but I would love it if you would find me there. Then perhaps I would have some friends on Instagram. You can find me on LinkedIn, obviously. That's very effective. And then also on YouTube. So I have a YouTube channel and I would love it if you would subscribe to my YouTube channel. And the intent with that, hopefully for vets who are listening is that you will find videos that you can maybe put on a loop in your lobby or in your exam rooms for your clients to watch because it will be veterinary friendly, veterinary appropriate because it's veterinary translations for pet owners. So yeah, so not something that competes with what we're saying, which occasionally some shows do, but stuff that supports what we're trying to do to provide good, solid care, especially preventive med for pets. So yeah, so thanks for that. So hopefully go find me in those places. And if you have trouble, you could just send me an email (laughs) and I'll help you. I love it. I love the video content, the idea of being able to utilize that in the practice. I'm sure we'll talk again at some point. Hopefully one of these days when conferences get back to being in person, we can connect in person too. And I appreciate it. Thank you so, so, so much for your time. No, thank you for having me on and for putting out such a podcast. I love it. Talking about the hard stuff, especially related to money. Oh, man, it's tricky to get veterinarians to talk about money. So yeah, good on you for trying that. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to today's show. The comments made on today's show should not be taken as investment, tax, or legal advice. All comments are for educational purposes only. You should consult your team before implementing anything. Isaiah Douglas is a partner of Vincere Wealth Management. Isaiah is registered in the state of Indiana, California, Texas. The biggest compliment you can give to this podcast is to share it with a friend. Reviews help the show get found, and Apple Podcasts is the platform that predominantly is how people listen to the show. If you have three to five minutes, you like the show, please head over to Apple Podcasts, give us an honest rating and review that'll help more people find the show. For all of today's links and information, head over to veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. There you can subscribe via your favorite podcast platform platform so you won't miss another episode. Finally, if you'd like more information, insights, and have the ability for your voice to be heard and interact with show guests, join the private Facebook group. You can go to the Veterinary Success Podcast on Facebook or head over to the veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. Scroll all the way to the bottom where it says about your host and then click on the Facebook icon. That'll bring you into the Facebook group. I'll approve you. You'll be in. And then I'd love to hear your questions, feedback, and anything that you'd like to see added to the show. So with all that, thank you so much for listening. I'll be talking again to you soon.